You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about scoliosis. Joining me is a physical therapist from CHOP, Ian Leahy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So since we're talking about scoliosis, I'll say that in primary care, most of us do an Adams Ford Bend test and use a scoliometer to assess for scoliosis. Are we doing the right thing or are there other things we can do to clinically look at scoliosis? No, so that is still considered the gold standard by the Scoliosis Research Society. Um, You know, the biggest thing of the input that I get sometimes from patients is that when they go see their primary care physicians, they're told, you know, I'm told to bend over and then the physician will tell me, oh, it seems like you might have a bit of scoliosis, go see an orthopedic physician. So I think there's some concern among family members as well as people in the research department that not a lot of primary care physicians are using the scoliometer or understanding how to interpret it. So Mm. the biggest thing is, is, you know, it takes seconds to run a scoliometer across the spine. And then the guideline is, is if you're seeing five degrees or more of that asymmetrical rotation, that that warrants an x-ray. So you would immediately send them off to get some type of imaging to, to either rule or rule in or rule out that structural deformity of the spine. I think that's a great point that it's not just doing the forward bend and using your visual assessment, but just doing that quick confirmation with the scoliometer because five degrees isn't a lot um, and it's important to confirm that. And I also think just to document the degree so that when you do Mm -hmm. see kids back in the future, you have a a comparison point. Yep, absolutely. So when a patient is diagnosed with scoliosis, what are some of the factors that will predict whether or not it progresses? So this is like the million dollar question. <laughs> this is where all the research is. Um, you know, there, there's certain equations that we can use to predict it, but they're based upon certain degrees at the start. So unless we're catching these kids, um, you know, the one is the Lonstein Carlson equation where you have to be at 30 degrees or more in order to then predict the progression of it. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough to predict these things. But in the end, we tell patients it's, it's based on time. So it's, it's really based on the prime factors, which are what is the Cobb angle when we first find it? And then mm-hmm. what is the patient's age? The, the second thing is that we then look at, at the important factors of the Rizzer scale, Um, as well as the Sanders scale. So we're looking at the growth plates. Mm -hmm. So if we have a patient that has a structural deformity of the spine, still has potential for a lot of growth, so the growth plates in the Rizzer scale or the Sanders scale aren't closing, then we just put these patients into a high risk of progression. You know, the other things, especially with the female patients, is we want to know have they started their their menstrual cycle yet. Mm -hmm. Because we know that once they start that menstrual cycle, that we're looking at about 18 months of continued growth. You know, there's outliers in there where some will be less, some will be more. But we at least know at that point that we have a timeline of how much more we have to really watch this thing closely. Mm-hmm. That's really good to know that it's not just a standard kind of answer, that it really depends yeah. on their skeletal maturity, mm-hmm. their age, some maybe even a little bit of yeah. gender. And, and in the past, we were, we were really only looking at the RISER score, which mm-hmm. is the, the growth rate of the pelvis. 
Um, and then Columbia University, Dr. Sanders started looking at the growth plates in the, the hand and the fingers. Mm -hmm. So at CHOP, I know Dr. Flynn and, and the rest of the orthopedic team is really looking at the combination of the two in one x-ray. So okay. it, it gives us that better feel for how much growth that patient has. And you've mentioned a few numbers here. So we talked about the five degrees on the scoliometer, but mm -hmm. you also just mentioned the Cobb angle. So for people who mm -hmm. don't know what that is, that's an x-ray calculation. Correct. Right? So that is the measure of the curve using an x-ray. So that's the only way that you get that true degree of deformity in the spine. So that's something you could ask your radiologist to help you calculate. Yep, correct. So... We often see kids with scoliosis being told to wear a brace. And so when they're put in a brace, how long is that usually for? So we generally use the guideline that if you fall within bracing range, so the, the Scoliosis Research Society for that states that if you're 25 degrees or more and you have a low RISR score, we're going to brace you. That the, the research shows that's the best time to put you in a brace to prevent progression. So we basically will tell a patient, as soon as you get put into that bracing range and you get fitted for a brace, you're going to wear it until you're done growing. Mm. So the later a patient can go before they get braced, if they need to go to that extent, the better because they'll have to wear it less. But, you know, I have patients now that get braced at the age of 10 or 11 that are going to be wearing it until their skeleton mature, which is several years. Mm. So. And are there different types of braces or is there sort of a one size fits all? <laughs> no, there's not. There's, there's a whole array of braces out there. Um, at CHOP, we tend to use what's referred to as the three-dimensional Boston overlap brace. Okay. So it's different than the traditional overlap brace where the three-dimensional name comes from the fact that they are designing it in a way that fits exactly the three-dimensional torsion of the scoliosis. Um, the other brace that's out there that is pretty much the gold standard over in Europe is the Rigo Chanel brace. And it's starting to gain traction here in the United States. The, the kind of the downfall of that brace is, is that it takes longer to fabricate and you have to be trained in how to make it. But there are a few people, one at CHOP in particular that uses it. Um, and then Dr. Winnell, who's out at the Princeton office, she has an orthotist that comes in because she only uses the Rigo Chanel brace. Hmm. Um, and then there's other braces such as the Wilmington brace, which AI DuPont uses. And then there's the Providence brace, which is a, a nighttime brace that's used. So are there major differences between the types of braces in terms of outcome or is it more of a personal preference? I think it depends on who's doing the research. Um, you know, the outcome is we, we base it upon we do an embrace x-ray to see how the, the correction while the patient's wearing the braces. And then obviously we follow those long term. The other variables that I think are important to look at is compliance with the brace. Um, you know, studies are starting to show that the different brace styles have different levels of compliance based upon the comfort of wearing them. Right. Um, and then the other big thing too is that the Rigo Chanel brace is, is fastened from the front, whereas the Boston Overlap brace is fastened from the back. So an individual's ability to take it on and off themselves is, is a big factor as well. Mm -hmm. so. so you just mentioned compliance with the brace. So what are some of the common reasons that your patients tell you that they're not compliant? So I feel like this could be a podcast in itself. <laughs> um, you know, number one is, is the psychological aspect. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're talking about females, you talk about the type of clothes that they want to wear, especially this time of year where it's hot outside right. or they want to go to the beach and they want to wear a bathing suit. The last thing they want to do is, is have this bulky brace on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big thing. Uh, another big thing that I've seen with my patients is that when you think about scoliosis, it's, it's a symptom-free diagnosis mm -hmm. until you get later on in your life. Right. So you have these, these girls and boys who one day are fine, they're playing a sport or they're playing with their friends 
they go for a wellness visit, they get told you might have scoliosis. Then the, it starts this ball rolling where then they get an x-ray, they get told you do have scoliosis, and then they get fitted for a brace. And all of a sudden, it's you know, two weeks ago, I was living my life normal, and now you're putting me in this thing that's not exactly the most comfortable to wear. Right. So it's that... You're just, almost adding symptoms yeah. to Exactly. Yeah. So it's this just lack of desire, because it's, I'm not in pain, I feel fine, and right. yet you're telling me I have to change what I'm doing. So that's a big problem too. Right. And then the other aspect of it is the family dynamic. Mm. You know, you have these, you have the kind of the two extreme end of the spectrums with parents where you have that parent who's really strict. And then that, that leads to this kind of battle between patient and parent. And then you have the parent who's almost too sympathetic where it's, you know, okay, if it bothers you, don't wear it as long as they're saying to right. wear it. So it, it's hard. It, it's a wide variety of reasons why people aren't compliant with it. And when you're in a brace, do you have to wear it most of the day? Like how many hours a day are they in this? So guidelines are we tell them 18 to 20 hours a day. The the research is showing it's not so much the daily average that's important as much as at the end of the week if the overall average is about 18 to 20 hours a day. So I stress with my my patients, and a lot of them do this, is that I have them get basically like a brace journal. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of my patients, I'm seeing them at a sports medicine facility. So they're, they're active in sports. They're playing multiple sports throughout the year. And, and we don't want them wearing the brace. So it, you know they have to f- sit down and figure out that if I have practiced for two hours this day, and I also have it off for when I do X, Y, and Z, that mm-hmm. I have to make up those hours throughout the rest of the week. And the, and the ones who are good about that tend to have you know relative success while mm-hmm. wearing the brace. That's a good idea, though, that gives kids some flexibility. I mean, if you're going to prom, you don't want to be wearing exactly. a brace. But exactly. if you're going to be at the movie theater, maybe that's mm-hmm. a good time to wear it. So yeah, it's nice and, that they have that. And, and the ones who do the brace journal, they say that it really it holds them accountable for you know how long they're wearing it. So if we see a patient in clinic who is supposed to be wearing a brace, we, mm-hmm. maybe we see your notes or orthopedics <sighs> notes, how can we assess whether or not the brace is fitted correctly? Or can we not? So... Th- in a way you can. So the biggest thing is that, you know, after the patient gets the brace and wears it for about three to four weeks, we do an in-brace x-ray. Okay. That's going to be the first key if, if they're wearing it right, number one. Or number two, more and more important, is it if it's fabricated correctly. So, right. you know, are the, the pressure points where we want them based upon where the curve is? That's the first thing. So hopefully the patient already has that. And then that information is, is already out there for you. Mm-hmm. If it's a case where it's prior to that embrace x-ray and you're seeing them, it's it's simple things like marks on the skin. It, you know, are there breakdown of skin in certain areas? Mm-hmm. You would expect areas of redness where there's, you know, the rotation in the spine or where the apex of the curve is. Mm-hmm. If you see redness in those areas, that's normal. That's where the pressure point of the brace is coming from. But if you're seeing areas of redness that are away from those parts of the spine, that might be a red flag that one, they're not putting it on correctly or two, maybe it's not fitting correctly. Mm-hmm. So. Great. Those are good tips for us to keep in mind. I've heard some people talk about exercises, particularly the Schroth exercises. Mm-hmm. So tell us what these are and, and how effective they are. So the the whole idea of Schroth therapy was based out of out of Germany. And, and we're really not even using the term Schroth therapy anymore. We're simply calling it scoliosis rehab because okay. the, the principles of Schroth, which was started by Katerina Schroth, who was a, a female who has scoliosis and was kind of sick and tired of people telling her there's nothing you can do. So she decided to kind of take ownership of it. Mm-hmm. Um, her principles have been kind of expanded over the years by different groups. So we, we simply call it scoliosis rehab, but the, the whole purpose of it is, and the, the biggest thing we stress is that we're not trying to straighten the curve. I think there's this concern that 
we're telling patients, well, if you do these exercises, your curves right. going to straighten, which isn't true. You know, the biggest thing is, is that we try to improve kind of spinal proprioception. So there's a postural component to the scoliosis. And if you can correct that postural component, you can actually have correction of the curve to a degree. Mm. Um, and, and the other big thing is, and this is one of the things that we stress with patients, is that who knows how long you've had scoliosis. It just happened to be the point now that we found it. Right. So the brain has really gotten used to this asymmetry in the posture that the patient thinks that they're standing up straight, but yet they have this big shift in their pelvis or mm -hmm. this rotation of their trunk. So we really are trying to teach the patient how to correct that actively. Okay. The other big thing is, is that when we brace a patient, we see sometimes upwards of 50% correction with that in-brace x-ray. Hmm. So they have a flexible enough spine where an external structure can push it straight. Right. So we tell patients, let's when you take that off, let's try to hold yourself in right. that position. So that's really all we're doing. And then we just use different positions to challenge the patient's ability to control the spine in that corrected position. So these are exercises that are sort of augmenting what bracing is Correct. doing exactly. in many cases. Exactly. And, and if, if the brace is designed with that three-dimensional idea in mind, the patient actually learns how to wear the brace as a more dynamic stabilizer as opposed to just a passive structure that mm -hmm. they put on because they can learn how to move within the brace if they're doing it correctly. So... Patients can do their scoliosis rehab while wearing a brace? Correct. Yeah, so we do it both. Okay. So, you know, ultimately we want them out of the brace because right. we want them to get that feel for their sure. self-correction. But early on, we'll put the brace on because we want them to learn why there's a giant cutout in mm. part of their brace. It's like, well, it's because we want you to move towards that. And so right. having them exercise in the brace allows them that if they move incorrectly, they'll feel the pressure of the brace. If they move correctly, they feel this opening that they actually can move into. Mm -hmm. um, and then we ultimately will take the brace off and have them do it without it. So is this something that the orthopedists are often referring to you as a physical therapist for, is the scoliosis rehab component? Yeah, so it's it's been kind of this slow, we've, we've had this, this program up and running now for almost four years. Um, and now there's two trained clinicians, myself and Megan Barnes over at King of Prussia. So early on, there was you know, we were trying to figure out what was the base, best patient population to send over. So we originally were only getting patients that were braced, and mm -hmm. it, you know we were having really good reports from the patient. We were getting you know good findings from the follow-up X-rays, and then, you know we were seeing less of that out of brace progression, which is ultimately our goal. Mm -hmm. um, and then it became more and more parents were reading about it, and therefore they wanted to be sent to rehab, even if they weren't embracing range. Right. And so they were requesting it. So now we're getting patients, you know, throughout the entire phase of scoliosis, you know, treatment of pre-bracing ranges, mm -hmm. in-brace range, as well as post-op that we're mm -hmm. seeing these patients, so. Great. So how successful are these non-surgical management strategies that we've talked about, exercising and bracing in terms of treating scoliosis? So I, the problem with scoliosis is that to do a really high level study with this is going to be challenging because no parent is going to allow their child to be the case control. Right, where, right. We won't do anything. But more and more studies are coming out, um, both in the United States as well as in Europe, that are looking at uh, bracing only combined with bracing and rehab. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is that the combination of bracing and rehab is resulting in less progression um, later on in years, mm -hmm. as well as a, a, a much more significant percentage avoiding surgery. So 
I think the research is gaining some traction. I know that myself, um, as well as Megan, have been collaborating with Columbia University mm -hmm. um, to start doing some studies looking at that exact thing. So yeah, I think it's, it's there. It's just, I think we need to do more research to show it. So how could we in primary care refer to you if we have a patient who maybe we think isn't at the point yet where they need to necessarily have surgery and maybe they're not even at the point yet where they need bracing and we want to refer them for scoliosis rehab or to get a consultation with you? What's the referral process like for that? So within CHOP, it's actually really easy. Um, you know, we can, we, what we stress is we, want, we don't want the physician who's referring them over to refer specifically for shock therapy. Because mm -hmm. what we have been seeing um, is that insurance will kind of come back and battle that because they'll tell you, well, this is still kind of being researched and it's not right. a known thing. So what we stress is that if a primary care physician is seeing these postural asymmetries and maybe the, there is a trunk rotation, but it's not at that five degrees yet, which will warrant an x-ray, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, postural retraining or you know, potential scoliosis, we want to send them to rehab for a full evaluation where you know, at King of Prussia, we have a topographical scan known as a Deers for Metrics unit where we can actually use non-radiation scanning of their back and this the this computer will send out this kind of three-dimensional image of what the spine should be based upon what their posture is mm -hmm. and we can see if there's a potential curve there um, and we can use all that to come up with some type of rehab plan where we simply just work on spinal proprioception putting them in different positions where they have to now correct whatever that asymmetry is mm -hmm. um, yeah and it's if it's within system it's just a referral over to us and we can get them in for those who are outside the CHOP network, mm -hmm. I'm assuming they would call they would, Yeah, they would just simply call and, and we would go through that process of insurance verification. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but again, once the, the prescription is in and we verify the patient's insurance so that they, they get seen without a bill, um, there really shouldn't be an issue. We've had more and more of these outside referrals coming in recently, which is a good sign. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what are some of your, let's say, top three take-home points that primary care pediatricians should know about scoliosis? So I, I think the first, the biggest one, because this is where the research is, is early detection is absolutely key. So the sooner we can find these kids, the better. And, and again, even if it's that there seems to be something off with that forward bend, but I run the scoliometer and maybe it's only two or three degrees, it's still okay to start to kind of get that ball rolling because be, you'd be better off to be conservative early on mm -hmm. than to miss something. So, right. you know, trying to send these kids over early. So the the second take home point is, is that as a parent, before when, if your child was diagnosed less than 25 degrees, you would be told, all right, we'll just wait and see. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you back in six months. Is that truly a treatment of just waiting and see? Because as a parent myself, like that would make me panic, and, right. and I would want an X-ray earlier, or you know. Right. And you don't think about things like radiation and all that stuff. So the other take-home point is that if you're in that pre-bracing range, there's no longer you have to wait and see. It's you can start rehab early. Where you know, I would never say that we guarantee you'll keep you out of a brace, mm -hmm. but if we can start to catch that that postural issue early, maybe we can prevent the the postural component of the scoliosis moving forward. Third take on point is that the collaboration now across networks has been huge. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a, an outstanding relationship, not only with, with the orthopedic team, but also with the orthotist. So there, there's such a better communication between the entire network in terms of treatment for scoliosis that 
you know, not only am I trying to help the patient in terms of a rehab standpoint, I'm also almost like a liaison between the physician and the orthotist because I'm seeing these patients multiple times a month as opposed to once every six months. So that's another positive thing for, for parents and for patients that they would have that connection if questions arise that they don't want to wait six months to get to. Um, and also, it, there's been times where within two or three months, you almost feel like if this thing might be progressing really quickly, let's get you in sooner type thing. So. Right. Well, I love that you're giving some control, like you said, to the families in that in that period where they used to have to just wait. And and there really is no harm in teaching people right. about their posture. I mean, I feel right. like I could benefit from some of that, too. <laughs> <We all> <laughs> so it gives them something to do that may have some benefit yeah. um, and also gives them a little bit of control over mm-hmm. their disease. And then, like you said, the collaboration. We love our colleagues in orthopedics yeah. here, and it's nice to hear that everyone's working together. And, and also, like you mentioned, having physical therapists who are keeping an eye on our patients who have scoliosis in the interim between their orthopedist visits is also a really great asset. So we're not, you know, as primary care pediatricians too, we're, we're often just looking at the scoliosis worrying just like the parents are about, is this getting worse and should I call orthopedics earlier? So having you as an ally is a great thing for us to know. Yeah. And it's, and send the patients over because we, you know, the biggest thing we stress with, with patients, obviously the exercises are important and, and the postural awareness is important for just the education on, right. on what the plan is moving forward. And, you know, I teach parents, you know, here's simple things that you can do to just quick take a glance. If you see a change, let me know, because it might right. warrant, you know, getting this looked at a little bit sooner. So. Right. Well, thanks so much for all that you do. Where can we find physical therapy at CHOP? So for, for scoliosis, we are at King of Prussia. And then I also see patients twice a week at Princeton. Okay. Um, that is all in terms of scoliosis. Yeah, we're trying to build it. We're getting new space, which is great, which means we might get more clinicians to kind of help out. But physical therapy in general, we're at King of Prussia. We're at the Buck site. We're at the Virtuous site. We're at Princeton. We're all over. So great. reach out. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.